This episode is sponsored by More Than A Number, the brand new podcast from ICAEW. Search More Than A Number in your podcast app to hear Louise Cooper and thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's weekly podcast where we discuss some of the most interesting and intriguing stories within our pages each week with the writers behind them. I'm Lara Prendergast. The Conservatives like to say that their road to electoral victory is steep and narrow, but has Nigel Farage broadened out that path for them this week? Plus, is it time to grant amnesty to illegal immigrants? And finally, we ask whether baby boomers need to apologise for crimes against young people. First up, in this unpredictable election, one key figure has been keeping Tory campaign managers up at night. Nigel Farage would no doubt split the Leave vote and could deny the Tories a majority. But that all changed this week when Farage stood down Brexit Party candidates in Tory-held seats. So, are the Tories now on track to win the election? Katie Ball speaks to James Forsyth together with the YouGov pollster Marcus Roberts. James, partly because everyone, I suppose is scarred by the memories of 2017. Very few Conservatives want to talk or say the word majority. But you write this week that the chances of a Tory majority have increased. Why is that? I think they've increased for two reasons, principally. The first is Nigel Farage, by withdrawing Brexit Party candidates from all Tory-held seats, has made it easier for the Tories to defend those seats. But perhaps more importantly, he's also given the Tories a very powerful squeeze message on people planning to vote for the Brexit Party in those Labour-held seats that the Tories need to win a majority. He has told them that Boris Johnson is trying to get Brexit done. Otherwise, why would he have stood down the Brexit Party candidates in Tory-held seats? He's basically told them that Boris Johnson's deal is Brexit. And he's admitted that voting for the Brexit Party might mean that you don't get Brexit at all and you get a Corbyn government. I think that the Tories will find that very helpful in the final weeks of a campaign when trying to squeeze that Brexit Party vote down in those Labour-held marginals that they need to win. I think the other opposition politician who has been um, doing sterling work from a Tory perspective is Nicola Sturgeon. In Scotland, she she is constantly talking about how she will use a hung parliament to get Indyref too. I mean, this helps the Tories for two reasons. First of all, in Scotland, it makes the case for unionist tactical voting. And I think that means that, you know, in September, the Tories thought they would lose 10 seats north of the border. I think they now think they'll lose five. And they can think that that might, might reduce even further before polling day. But then also in England, it helps them because it enables the Tories to revive that theme that was so potent for them in 2015, which is do you want a hung parliament where the Scottish nationalists hold the balance of power? And again, as in 2015, you've got a Scottish National Party leader, and this time it's Nicola Sturgeon, who looks strong up against a Labour leader who looks weak. So when Nicola Sturgeon responds to Jeremy Corbyn saying, well, I won't let them have IndyRef2 by saying, basically, you'll do what I tell you to, that resonates with English voters. And I think this framing of the election as a choice between a Tory majority and a hung parliament just is a helpful one for the Tories and increases the chances of a Tory majority. Marcus, is what we're seeing in the polls in the past couple of days, is that reflecting what James is saying about how things do look better for the Tories? Yes, it is. This week's YouGov numbers show the Conservatives on 42, Labour on 28, and the Liberal Democrats on 15. 
why that Liberal Democrat number matters in particular is because it's the flip side of Tory success that James was just talking about. Just as the Conservative Party has been successful at squeezing the Brexit Party's vote back to them, the Labour Party has enjoyed some measure of success in squeezing the Liberal Democrat vote back towards it, creating a two-party dynamic once again for this general election as of now. But here's the problem potentially for the Conservatives in this, which is to win Northern marginals, the Conservatives need the Remain vote to be split in different ways. They don't want to see a coalescence of that Remain vote with a further squeeze on the part of the Liberal Democrats by Labour, which would make it that much more difficult for the Conservatives to win those Northern seats. James, I'm going to throw a light dose of scepticism on proceedings just to try and bring some, you know, bring some balance perhaps to this podcast. But lots of people clearly think back to 2017 and perhaps that's why people don't want to say things are going well for the Tories in case it is just a repeat. One thing I'm struck by is when I speak to MPs in some of the seats or the areas generally where the Tories are supposed to be picking up seats if you look at their general strategy, so Wales the Midlands, North East. Each time I would say those MPs say, I think things are going fine, but I'm not sure we're going to pick many up in this area. Why do you think there is scepticism amongst Tory MPs in the target areas? I think some of the target, supposed target seats, but I mean, we don't know what the target seats are yet because I think the Tories haven't quite made some of those final decisions are not realistic. I mean, the Tories are on a fishing expedition in some places, which isn't isn't going to bear fruit. Mm. I also think, though, that we can... It is possible to over-egg the nature of challenge. The Tories lost in 2017. The Tories lost 28 seats to Labour. Now, seven of those seats were in London or places very like London, such as Brighton. But that still leaves 21 seats that the Tories lost because of a bad campaign. Win the bulk of those back... And suddenly the task for the Tories becomes a lot easier. You know, you're not looking at necessary. You're not you're not relying on winning 20, 30, 40 seats that haven't voted Tory in the modern era. You're talking about winning back the bulk of 21 seats that voted Tories two years ago. So I, I think that is an an element of this. And it was interesting. I was talking to a Tory cabinet minister today, who said that you know the best places they have been in this campaign are the places that the Tories lost in 2017. Those seem much more obtainable because the Tories have better information about where their vote is and all that stuff than some of these slightly stretched targets of places that have been Labour for generations. I also think the other thing to remember is that on your point about the Liberal Democrats and the Remain vote and Marcus's point, the Tories will win some of these seats with their vote at the same level or even slightly lower than it was in 2017 on current trends. And so I don't think this is going to feel like a kind of a, a, a big, big numbers. I also think we should be kind of realistic about what we're talking about. At the start of the 2017 campaign, the Tories thought they were going to win a majority that was going to be, you know, close to three figures. This time around, I think the Tories are looking at, you know, somewhere between zero and 40, with 40 being at the kind of upper end of a, of a good night for them. So I think that's perhaps another reason why people are. But I do think that your your, your question is essentially right, which is 2017 has left the Tory party scarred. I don't mean, you know, people will, you know, in, and, and it's and it's also it also affected us. You know, Marcus was just saying that the latest YouGov has the Tories 14 points ahead. If it wasn't for 2017, 
we wouldn't be having this sceptical discussion about whether the Tories can win a majority if there was a poll showing the Tories 14 points ahead. Yeah, that's exactly right, because I think whilst the emotional temperature amongst the parties is the fear of 2017 on the Tories' part and the hope for 2017 on Labour's part, the reality of this election campaign to date has been far more like 2015. And in 2015, of course, the Labour Party enjoyed what seemed to be, for the first couple of weeks, a pretty good start to the campaign. And the election uh, campaign ended with a small Conservative majority that took many people by surprise. I feel so far that this election seems a lot more like 2015 in reality than in 2017, not least of all because we're now focusing for about two weeks on the fact that voters are talking about the issues that the Conservatives want them to talk about. Whereas at the beginning of the campaign, Brexit is the most important issue, had fallen from 70 points down to 59 points. Now YouGov has Brexit as the most important issue back at 66 points. When we look at the best prime minister choice, we see Boris Johnson with a steady 20-plus point lead. It's now up to 22 points over Jeremy Corbyn for best prime minister. This is what CCHQ want the election to be about. Marcus, this is the biggest risk to the Tories, not that their campaign goes off track or if we say, for example, that they're getting the campaign they want. It is feasible that they continue to run the campaign they want. And actually, most days it's the issues the Tories want to talk about. So Brexit, particularly, that come up. But there's still a risk with that, that you have a situation where somehow the Liberal Democrat vote folds into Labour if Labour can establish yes. it itself as the main source or I suppose the most viable route to a second referendum. Do you think that's the biggest risk for the Tories in this campaign? Yeah, I do. I would would say that there are three big question marks about this election that might still call into question what the result is in big ways. One is what happens with that Liberal Democrat vote if Labour is able to successfully squeeze it still further. And we've talked uh, previously about the importance of tactical voting in all of this. And tactical voting is still a big X factor for the Conservatives' plans for a majority. The second thing is the role of the debate, especially the prime ministerial or rather presidential-style debate just between Corbyn and Johnson. If that debate does not go as well for prime minister as he hopes, that could give Labour a boost in the polls. And then the third problem uh, that the Conservatives have, or rather question mark, is We don't know for sure that just because Brexit is currently what the election is about, if it will still be about Brexit in three weeks' time. If instead, in three weeks' time, we're discussing an NHS winter beds crisis again, that would create a very different emotional flavour on the election as a whole. So if I was the Tories, I'd be worried about the debates, I'd be worried about Liberal Democrat tactical voting, and I'd be worried about whether Brexit can still be the main issue of the election even in three or four weeks' time. And on that final question for both of you, which is, should the Tories be worried about the floods? Because we have seen Boris Johnson get quite negative publicity this week about his handling of the series of floods that have been in the northeast. Do you think, James, that is an issue for them that could grow? Yeah, I think, I think as, as you've pointed out in the magazine before, before this, this is the risk of a winter election for the Tories. There are just, you know, in a campaign, you want to control as much as possible. And a winter election means there are more things outside your control, whether that be floods or, ex, you know, other extreme weather events, 
or whether, as Marcus said, that's that's you know we've seen some bad NHS numbers this week about you know, the the worst ever since targets were introduced in terms of meeting that four hour wait time in any. If that winter crisis gets worse, then you know that could be problematic for the for the Tories. I think this is you know it is the risk that the the the, the, the it, you know events by dear boy events change the nature of the election. Marcus, do you think that the flooding is an issue that will come up in terms of? A voter issue or do you think it's more likely to be specific to the area where people are affected? Yeah I think it's more likely to be about the area that it's uh, in which people are affected but Boris Johnson's response to this was not that of Gerhard Schroeder in 2002 with his flooding crisis or of Gordon Brown in 2007 when he faced a flooding crisis. In both of those cases, they donned their wellies and waders and they made sure there were plenty of, of um, photo opportunities. Gordon Brown convened Cobra immediately. He made it a big national thing, um, never one to let a good crisis go to waste. And I think that the marked difference between those approaches in which which those politicians were able to show how much they cared and engage properly, seriously on the issue at the time, and Boris Johnson's rather strange ignoring of this fact at the time, when all it would have taken was to suspend his campaign for a day or two, go out and see what the situation was and take ownership and leadership at that time, is important. If there were more slips like that, you'd begin to worry about the tightness of the campaign and their decision-making a little. Thank you, Marcus. Thank you, James. Hello, I'm Livia Potts and I'm Spectator Life's Vintage Chef. And I'm here to tell you about the new Spectator Life website where you can find articles on food and drink, travel, fashion, theatre, cinema and so much more. And you can also find all the Table Talk podcasts where Lara Prendergast and I talk to notable people about their life through food. Just go to life.spectator.co.uk. Next, with around 1.2 million legal immigrants living in this country, is it time to grant them amnesty? The Spectator argued so last week in its leader, and this week Ross Clark talks to Trevor Wren, a former soldier in the British Army whose immigration status is stuck in limbo. But policy exchanger's David Goodhart, author of The Road to Somewhere, disagrees. He joins us on the podcast today, together with our editor, Fraser Nelson. Fraser, can you start by setting up for listeners what you think is the general case for offering amnesty to illegal immigrants? The general case is basically a humanitarian one, that we have got something like 1.2 million illegal undocumented immigrants in this country. Now that is, it's basically more than the population of Birmingham, a huge mass of humanity. These are our countrymen, they can be our neighbours, they can work in our shops, they can be, you know, helping in our society, but unlike us, they do not have the protection of the law. They're quite often forced to work in the shadow economy. And the argument on one level is relatively simple. Why not involve them in the proper economy, have them paying taxes, contributing, giving them legal status, allowing them to improve their lives? On the practical level, 
It's also quite important. Are we really seriously saying we're going to deport 1.2 million people? There is no way that that's going to happen, but the government is still theoretically committed to the expulsion of these people. Now, the objections against this are, are quite simple. They're saying, look, we can't simply allow anybody who comes here to stay. What about the illegal immigrants who've worked so hard? And yes, all these points are valid. But if you have people who've been living here for a certain number of years, like Trevor Rennie, who we profile in this week's magazine, that's, to me, a pretty clear-cut case. I imagine even David Goodhart would agree that somebody like Trevor Rennie, who is um, who was born in the Dominican Republic when it was still a British colony, who has served in the military, who has lived here for 10 years peacefully, who has served his country in uniform, ought to be allowed to stay rather than have the Home Office lawyers pursuing him. So I'm not saying give amnesty to every single person. I am saying that there ought to be a route to amnesty for those who have been here for, example, 10 years or more. David, in Unheard this week, you argue against the spectators' policy and say that it's a terrible idea. Why do you think it's such a terrible idea? Well, I don't argue against what Fraser just said at the very end there. In fact, I argue for that myself. I think the idea of a general amnesty is an extremely bad idea. I think nothing that, that The Spectator has written gives nearly enough stress to the degree of corrosiveness that illegal immigration creates in the inner city. I mean, it creates a kind of a zone of, of lawlessness and a, a kind of free-for-all. It, it undermines the decent law-abiding employer and the decent law-abiding immigrant. I, I, I don't think you have any sense of, of, of what a curse it is in many ways. I also don't think you have enough of a sense of, of what a sort of variety of illegal immigration is. I mean, there are a lot of illegal immigrants who actually live perfectly normal lives and are perfectly well protected by, by the law. They came in on a false document of one kind or another. There are other people, as I say, who live in this kind of twilight world who are both kind of offenders and victims at the same time. And and we should do all we can to, to help those people. This is what the kind of modern slavery legislation was partly about. I think a general amnesty, though, would send absolutely the wrong signal, particularly at a time like now, when immigration enforcement... Uh, and the so-called hostile environment have been substantially weakened by the Windrush scandal, the you know, the egregious mistake that the Home Office made targeting people who were in fact legal British citizens. It's completely knocked the confidence out of the Home Office, in, in this area at least. Uh, there's been a very, very sharp drop in deportations, both voluntary and forced deportations over the last couple of years. I mean, essentially, anybody who could get to this country now illegally has an absolutely minimal chance of being deported. So if we had a public amnesty now, it would be an enormous incentive for more people to come. I'm in favour of people who've been here for more than 10 years coming out of the twilight and being regularised, but a general amnesty is an absolutely terrible idea at the moment. It's far better to to put one's energy into arguing for for a modern version of ID cards, which would have stopped all... It would have stopped the Windrush scandal. It would make it much harder to be an illegal immigrant here. That is what we should be arguing for, perhaps alongside sensible regularisation of people who have been here for many, many years. 
Well, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted, actually, David, that we seem to be in agreement. I mean, this is the problem when one wants to debate legal immigration. <laughs> the very phrase seems to send people into thinking that you're going to take an extreme position. You're going to mm. grant amnesty to every single person here. Wouldn't that be an uproar? And the people who have tried to make sensible arguments over this, I mean, the spectator under Boris Johnson was arguing for this in a leading article in 2002. We weren't saying give everybody um, the right to stay in Britain. We're saying that under certain circumstances, if you've stayed in the country for a certain number of years, if you've lived a law-abiding life, if you're demonstrably an asset to the country, then there ought to be a route to citizenship. I think the challenge here is for people who can see a common sense way forward to accept it's possible to do two things. It's possible to have tighter and better control of the borders, which we'll be able to do after we leave the EU. Doing that will decrease public concern about immigration and increase the political potential to have a sensible conversation about legal immigration. Uh, It's how you frame it too. So, you know, you can attack on at the very end oh, yes, well, let's make it highly selective for people who've been here for 10 years. Say that right at the beginning so you don't frighten the horses. And I think it's much better to have this combination of sensible regularisation for people who are never going to leave anyway, given human rights law, combined with coming down much harder on the, on short... You know, we still probably have about twenty five to 30,000 people coming in every year illegally. So let's have a kind of dual dual approach in which we have sensible regularisation for long-term people while coming down much harder on short-term people. Fraser, you're advocating this policy as one the Tories should adopt for their manifesto. I mean, it seems a slightly mad policy for them to adopt. Do you think? Do you g- genuinely think it's a good idea for them to adopt it? Well, here's my argument. I know that this is probably the toughest political argument that you can make because it's so easily caricatured. Uh, the very phrase "legal migrants" tends to get people's um, anger rising. I mean, which is why I prefer the phrase undocumented migrants. But I think right now Boris Johnson has got quite an opportunity because he is the face of Brexit. And a lot of people are attacking him for being terribly right wing and harsh. And and those who are concerned about immigration seem to have confidence that Brexit, the act of leaving the EU, will return the control to Britain. And this gives the Tories the right to talk about more liberal things they want to do. I would like, for example, there to be a removal of the cap on skilled migration. And I think once you are tackling migration in the way that people are more, more happy with, then you've got the right politically to say, well, let's look at those who've, who have been here for eight or ten years. So I actually think it would be a useful signal to those who are quite now worried about Tory motives, those who worry about the blackness of Tory hearts, who see in Brexit a xenophobic and malign agenda for the Conservatives to be able to say, look, it's not what you think. I can see why you might get that idea. But once we leave the EU, we are going to be a more liberal country. And that liberal country is going to, amongst other things, offer a way back to citizenship for illegal migrants. Those people are never going to. They're they're never going to (laughs) vote Tory or or think the Tory is anything other than how you described it. I mean, you know, and you also have to take account of of the Tories' sort of new constituency. I mean, you know, more more people from blue-collar, working-class backgrounds, partly because the Tories have become the party Brexit, are considering voting Tory or will vote Tory. You know, and, and you have to think about their interests too and, and their their priorities. But there's a very difficult question about whether it's actually better to do these things quietly. OK, you don't end up getting any political brownie points you know, with more liberally minded people that you might get, but you also don't 
face the possibility of creating an encouragement, creating an incentive to, to, to come here. I think it might be better just to do it quietly and not to announce it. And that obviously means you don't get any political advantage from it. One of the reasons that we run in this week's magazine a profile of Trevor Rennie is to show readers the sort of person that we're talking about. And I think not just spectator readers, but even the blue-collar Labour voting workers in the places that you talk about, David, would look at this guy who has served his country, our country, in uniform and think he deserves to stay. And I, I don't really buy this idea that people in certain parts of the country being rabidly against basically a common-sense approach to um, naturalising people who've been here a while. So that's why we're running the case study of Trevor Rennie. We're telling his story. We're going to be running a few more of these stories in the magazine as well to make it quite clear what we're talking about. This is not a radical policy. This would not, if you put a 10-year residential um, condition, that's hardly an incentive for other people to join. So I do believe there is a case that a bold politician like Boris Johnson can make that would strike people, whether they're rich or poor, spectator readers or sun readers, they would strike them as being common sense. The argument is there to be made. All it takes is a prime minister with the courage to make it. I mean, the example you have in the Spectator is almost sort of is a, is sort of comically biased in a way. You know, you couldn't have invented a more sort of perfectly deserving person. Well, he's about But there are several people like him. Well, uh, sorry, several. An, uh, okay, uh, but, uh, well, but we're talking about significant. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people. You know, then lots of them are not going to be particularly nice or deserving people. But we, but the but the but the policy's got to apply to them too. It's no good. You know, I mean, obviously, this guy should never have been in that position in the first place. I mean, he's all he's almost a kind of windrush case. I mean, there was there were bungles yes, but, of various but, kinds. That's my whole but, point. But, yeah, no, but there aren't very many cases like that, Fraser. I mean, you know. The, the, the truth well, how, is how do you know? Because nobody's people... ever looked at it because it's so politically toxic that nobody wants to properly discuss it because we have discussions like the one we're having now where people take it to extremes and saying, OK, there might be two or three decent people, but look at all of these bad people we should be really kicking out. I just do not believe the situation is as bad as uh, as is made out. And I think there are lots more people like Trevor Rennie. I mean, we didn't make him up. He's a real guy who lives in Welland Garden City. I'm making an argument about the future. Look, we have... Everyone seems to agree we have roughly one million illegal immigrants already. Like I say, I don't think you have been talking enough about how damaging this is to life in in parts of inner-city Britain. It it is being added to at about 30,000 a year at the moment. I mean, we have to be very vigilant about this. We do have to have a hostile environment, but we also have to to use our common sense. We have to regularise certain groups of people who we know are never going to leave anyway. And I agree with you on that. But but let's do it in a balanced way. Uh, uh, not everybody is like your guy by any means. You know, he's an, he's an exceptionally good case. I mean, mo- most people are m- much more. I'm mean, I'm not saying they're bad people. You know, I mean, if I was living in some you know you know incredibly poor country, I'd, I would probably want take the risk of coming here and surviving as illegal myself. I'm not saying these are bad people, but illegal immigration itself is a very bad thing, and we want to reduce it to the absolute minimum. We must bear down on illegal immigration, and I. And we should not be giving the impression that, you know, that, that everybody is like the guy you profiled who'd been in the army, uh, you know, because it just isn't true. I mean, we've got to be, we've got to be you know, tough on Ill- illegal immigration while also being sensible about regularisation. I suppose we'll have to wait and see whether Boris does include it in his manifesto. David and Fraser, thank you very much. This episode is sponsored by More Than a Number the brand new podcast from the Institute of Chartered Accountants in England and Wales.
And finally. Ayo, hey, yeah. This one goes out to all the 65 plus crowd on SoundCloud. Not gonna say much. Shout out Jed Will. He gonna take over on the mic. Old ladies suck. Okay, Okay, Boomer. It's the dismissive retort that Gen Z, those born after 1995, have come up with to insult baby boomers. These youngsters blame the boomers for everything from climate change to the housing crisis. The phrase has taken the internet by storm, spinning off into t-shirts and mugs, and a Kiwi legislator even used it in Parliament recently. In the year 2050, I will be 56 years old. Yet, right now, the average age of this 52nd Parliament is 49 years old. Okay, Boomer. So, do these young Zoomers have a point? No, says Boomer Cosmo Landersman in this week's magazine, and he joins me now together with 21-year-old Charlie Nash, a contributor to Spectator USA who's here to defend the Zoomer generation. Cosmo, let's start with a definition. What do you see OK Boomer as meaning, and, and where did it actually come from, this phrase? OK Boomer comes from American teenagers, and it's a term, it's the catchphrase that has taken over the internet. And the correct usage of it is when some older person, that is anyone over 30, does something that you find rather condescending or they don't understand a piece of technology or they challenge your worldview in some way, what you do is you kind of roll your eyes and you go, okay, boomer. It's like a dismissive shrug of the shoulder. It's, kind of, it's, it's this month's whatever. You know, it's, it has that kind of, it's replaced that kind of term. Charlie, you're a Zoomer. Did you roll your eyes when you read Cosmo's piece this week? I mean, Cosmo's piece was very funny. I enjoyed it. Uh, there were a few things that I, I slightly disagreed with. Okay, well, where did I go wrong? Well, one thing I flagged was, uh, it's just a minor thing, but when you said um, that boomers are often mocked for their idealism, and I guess that's true with the kind of Woodstock-era boomer mm. who, who grew up in that kind of drugs and rock and roll, mm. Age, but the people who are slightly after that, who are still considered to be boomers, I guess their biggest fault is that they aren't idealistic at all. I mean, they tend to back centrism, they tend to back a political system that doesn't work for the younger generations. Well, they all move from changing the world to changing themselves. And that's another thing that the, the boomers. See, what, 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 what I was interested in is the way the boomers have used, uh, the zoomers have used boomers as a term of contempt when so much of their thinking and their culture and their ideas is basically an off product of boomer culture. I mean, for example, you know, the whole internet thing, you know, Steve Jobs, and we all, we all know how that part. And the whole kind of use of technology and that beginning, you know, that we're going to change the world through these platforms and all the, it's all it's all boomer babble. And I think it's a bit of a cheat to roll their eyes at us older people and say, okay, boomer. <laughs> you also say you're not very impressed with the riposte. You say it's too soft. I mean, what would you like, what well, would you like to be hearing? Well, that's the example. Saying? I mean, uh, Charlie just is sort of verifies something when he was having to begin this conversation. He was so sweet and nice and charming to me, sort of giving me the vicious kicking I was, I was hoping for. You know, there is a good critique to be made of the 60s, but the, the Zoomers can't sort of be bothered. They're not engaged in a kind of cultural history or a cultural critique. They're just into the next sort of text viral sensation. And that's why I think it's kind of like they need a little more intellectual muscle or just a bit more aggression. <laughs> well, Charlie, uh, Cosmo says in his piece that if Zoomers, which I guess would be you, were ever to pick up a book and read a little social history, they'd be horrified to discover that we didn't destroy their future, we made their future. What do you say to that? Well, I mean, it's mixed, really. I, I, there's an argument to be had that 
there are boomers who have the same political worldview as the, the Zoomers today. I mean, there's actually quite a few. Zoomers are, I guess, directly inspired by boomers, the whole anti-boomer political view. But equally, I mean, it's indisputable that there are elements of the boomer generation that have kind of uh, ruined the Zuma generation. I mean, the housing crisis, for one, that's a big issue. A lot of young people can't afford to, to own property, certainly in the London area and um, the big cities in America, too. And they blame the boomer for that. Um, and they blame the boomer for having this centrist political worldview, which has benefited them, but hasn't really benefited the younger generation. And then the whole OK Boomer thing, I mean, it's, yeah, sure, it's not completely, it's not a completely intelligent response, but it's, it's simple and it encompasses the whole philosophy, I think, quite well. It's not, but it's not a critique, it's a t-shirt slogan. Yeah. And that's fair enough. There's always a place for that. You know, I, I'm, I'm not against that. But when you say that, when you portray the boomers as somehow not developing any critique beyond themselves, you know, the whole ecology movement in its modern phase stemmed from boomer concerns. Uh, so I don't think you can knock them for that. The thing about your generation is that, you know, it has sort of bits of boomerism into it, but it doesn't have any of the hedonism. And whatever you think of the 60s generation, by God, we had fun. Whereas your lot don't ever seem to have that. There doesn't seem to be that passion for music and dance and getting out of your head. You don't even have sex anymore, according to various surveys. So I don't understand what you guys do all the time. Charlie, is that fair? Zoom is not having any fun? I mean, I guess my response to that would be that the boomer generation had the luxury of being able to have fun. Oh, you can't blame us for that, Charlie. <laughs> Come on. I mean, sure, we can have a bit of fun, but the reason we're so serious is because... Uh, things are a bit more screwed up for our generation. I mean, we can't think about having drugs and rock and roll and dancing and all the rest of it when uh, when our future is so uh, kind of hazy at the moment. Certainly with property, but with jobs and, you know, every other aspect of Western civilization seems to be on the decline. So I guess we're so serious because we have to be. And uh, this kind of split with Zoomers between the far left and the far right, which seems to be the most popular factions for the younger generations, seems to be that desire for but radical Charlie, change. But the point is that if, you don't, if you're not completely doing things that are going to embarrass you in 10 years' time, when will you do them? I mean, this is your golden years of screwing up, embarrassing yourself, having fun, you know, and you're saying, no, we're too busy being sensible. Oh, I mean, the Zoomer has done plenty of that. I mean, especially with Twitter and Facebook, it's worse than, than ever. I mean, we've all messed up, but I mean, I guess that could be another aspect to it. Maybe we don't have the luxury of making as many mistakes because of things like social media where those are held in the future against you. Well, that's, that's probably true. But remember, the, the, the time of the boomers wasn't all idealistic. There was protests, there was Vietnam War, there was incredible racism, there was poverty. It wasn't like a utopian uh, setup either. I mean, they had their issues that they were dealing with. But let me ask you this, to, to tell you on this, this point is, in 20 years' time, what will we look back on Zoomers to think that was really great and wonderful and get nostalgic about? Well, hopefully if things go according to plan, some, uh, some societal change. If not, then uh, maybe we end up having a bit of a, a boomer renaissance going the same way. I mean, who knows? Well, do you think, I mean, obviously generations often respond or react to the previous one. I mean, do you think what might come after you, Charlie, is a very sort of hedonistic generation that do want to party and have a good time? I mean, maybe. And we see aspects of that in the Zuma generation today. I mean, festivals are probably nearly as popular as they were in the 60s. I mean, there's a lot of festival 
Uh, going That's in. the once a year you decide to let your hair down. Not, not that it's something Saturday I go to. And then they're mainly boomers at festivals. Yeah, it's <laughs> boomers, yeah. Well, I mean, to an extent, but Reading and Leeds, I mean, it's full of Zoomers. Reading's not a good festival. <laughs> Any boomer will tell you that. You've been? We used to, yes, I used to go to them. I, I, I <laughs> okay, know all boomer. about it. Okay, <laughs> boomer. And that's it for this week. If you pick up the issue, you can read everything we've talked about, as usual, as well as more from Richard Ingrams, Richard Maidley, and Paul Collier. <laughs> And we've got a special offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12 at spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher, as well as a free £20 Amazon voucher. Thank you for listening, and do join us again next week. Thanks to our sponsor, More Than a Number the new podcast from ICAEW. Here presenter Louise Cooper in discussion with thought leaders unpacking the numbers behind some of the most pertinent questions of our time. Are businesses ill-prepared to cope with climate change? Is workplace inequality inevitable? And do businesses really have an age problem? Simply search for more than a number in your podcast app to download now.